everyone. My name is uh, Aaron. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm glad that each and every one of you are here with us this morning. Uh, Our desire here at Riverwood is to help everyone, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, to go just a little bit deeper with Jesus. And and so if you're here and kind of investigating what does it look like to follow Jesus, I'm thrilled that you're here. We actually have started Riverwood Church for you. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, we want you to continue just to go further further. And deeper, because we believe that what God wants to do is to change you, to help you to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. We're convinced that that's what our world needs more than anything else a bunch of people who are loving and living like Jesus. And so that's why we want to challenge you. We want to encourage you to invite. So I'm going to invite you to invite some people to Riverwood. Uh, In your handouts uh, is that little blue connection card. Uh, If you're a first-time guest with us, by the way, you're going to notice our church family filling that out. They usually fill up that top portion. If you're willing to fill out the entire part of that card, we will donate $5 to Compassion International on your behalf. Compassion International is an organization that we have partnered up with. They have a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. And so we would love to donate $5 on your behalf as a way to kind of say thank you for coming, and you're going to help us change a kid's life. So if you're willing to fill that out, you can fill that out as I just kind of run through a a couple of announcements here. But the one announcement I want you to to know is we want you to invite. Uh, Easter is going to be here before you know it. It's on April 16th. And so we want to invite you, just encourage your family, your friends. I realize, you know, we, we've got a lot of you that are, you know, young families. You may be taken off to go see family. But if you're going to be in the area, we encourage you, invite someone from work, uh, one of your neighbors, uh, a family member who maybe hasn't gone to church in a long time. We want to be a church that helps people, no matter where they're at in that spiritual journey, to find Jesus and follow him. And Easter is a great time. We're not going to do anything big and fancy, but we're just going to celebrate Jesus. Because at Riverwood, we kind of seek to celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday. And so we're just going to continue to do what we do. If they say, hey, I can't come on Easter, then say, well, that's okay, because my church is celebrating its third birthday on April 23rd, the very next week. So you could come then, all right? So they can't get out, all right? And hey, we're going to have cupcakes. We're going to have balloons. We're going to have a, a, a spotlight on Compassion International that morning. We'll actually have a table with some of the kids that you can see that we, you know, are available for sponsorship. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic morning. So invite them for Easter, April 16th. If that doesn't work, invite them for April 23rd, our third birthday, because we're going to party big. Because you may not know this, but like something like 76% of churches don't even make it to their third birthday. So the fact that we're making it to our third is celebration, all right? I don't think things are going to crash and fall apart in the next month, all right? So we're going big. We're going to celebrate. It's a big deal. Um, One other announcement. We uh, have a conviction at Riverwood of serving our community. We have an opportunity to do that on Saturday, April 8th at the uh, annual Family Fun Fair. We actually started serving at the Fun Fair before we ever even held a worship gathering like this. Uh, And it's been a great thing. Uh, This is where a lot of nonprofits that provide services to people have booths. They put on this really fun environment so families will come and the kids can get face painting and balloon animals and see fire trucks and hear the siren go off and see the the police dog. But in the process, their parents are finding out about the different services that might be available to them. It's just a great way to try and help those in our community who uh, have need. They usually run about 800 people in attendance on that Saturday. It runs from 10.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. So we just we have been invited to come and serve again just to be a welcome team. Uh, we'll have some people serving at an in, uh, info table, an intri- uh, entrance table. And there we have to get some surveys because this uh, fun fair gets some grant money. So we have to have so many surveys filled out. 
so we'll need people to help gather those uh, surveys. We also uh, need people just to be available to help you know, pick up trash that may be around, to help point people to where they need to go. So we need you to come at about 10 o'clock, just help finish with the setup, and serve until about 11.45. And then if you can't do that morning shift, we invite you to come at 11.45 and serve afterwards and help just with some of the cleanup. So if you're available for one of those two shifts, would you just write Family Fun Fair on your connection card and the time that you are available to help out? Uh, it's a lot of fun. And if you, for some reason, just feel like you can't make it happen, hey, bring your kids if you've got them. Uh, tell your neighbors about it. It really is a top-notch fun event, and uh, it, it's a big hit for our community. So that's on Saturday, April 8th. Well, last week, uh, I had the pleasure of sitting where you're sitting and hearing my friend Jason come up here and preach. Uh, it was great to hear him teach about the life of Joseph, and I just found myself really, really encouraged by his message. Uh, but uh, when we got back, the reason he was preaching was we took a little, as a family, we took a little spring break getaway. Uh, we were just gone for three days to a cabin. We had no internet, no TV, uh, way too much junk food. Uh, it was just, it was absolutely awesome. And we got back on Friday and we got our boys to bed and Leanne and I and Megan decided we were going to stay up and watch a movie. And the movie we had been wanting to see was Hacksaw Ridge. Now, I can't recommend Hacksaw Ridge. Not because it wasn't good. It, it was actually very good. It, it's really, really well put together. The, the acting is great. The directing is, is really good. The cinematography is, is just excellent. The reason I can't recommend it is because it is rated R. And it deserves every part of that R rating. It's directed by Mel Gibson. And if you saw The Passion of the Christ, you realize that Mel kind of likes blood. And this is about war. This is about the Battle of Okinawa. And Mel takes you right into the battle. So if you're the type of person who faints at the sight of blood, if you watch Hacksaw Ridge, you will be out for three weeks, okay? There is a lot of it. So that's why I can't recommend it. But it is an amazing, inspiring story. It's about a guy named Desmond Doss. And some of the amazing things he does, he's trying to adhere to his convictions and beliefs that actually run counter to many of the people in the army. Well, early in the film, when you're meeting Desmond you see a moment where he sees this really cute nurse named Dorothy, and he's immediately smitten. And he very, very awkwardly decides to ask her out, and much to everyone's surprise, she says yes. And so they go out on a first date, and they're sitting in a movie theater, and Desmond starts looking around at the other couples and realizes they're all kind of kissing. And he's looking over at this really cute girl next to him, and you can tell, he's thinking, I'd like to do the same. And so the movie ends, they walk out of the theater, and as they're getting ready to cross the street, Desmond does this. Without her permission, he grabs her, he starts giving her a kiss, and his reward for the kiss is a slap. Now, he deserved it, right? The timing wasn't right. It's their first date, they barely even know each other, and he's forcing himself upon her. So, young man, young men, listen, right now, this is not how to treat a woman, all right? Do not force yourself upon her, grab her, and give her a kiss. If you do, you will probably get a slap, and you will have deserved it. Now, about 10, 15 minutes later in the movie, you start seeing and realizing Desmond and Dorothy are now dating. And you actually see Dorothy over at his family's house. They're, they're doing things. You can see a friendship, a trust building between them. And in fact, there's a scene where he takes her out where he and his younger brother used to go. And they loved going out there. And as he's showing her this beautiful area of nature, they look at each other. And you realize 
it's going to happen again. And sure enough, Desmond goes in for the second kiss. And this time, it's a little better received. There's no slap afterwards because he finally got the timing right. We as humans sometimes mess up the timing. Sometimes we get so eager for something that we will rush to get it. But if we try and go for something before it's time, there's always a natural consequence. There is some sort of slap. Take, for instance, my classmate, Lisa. It's not her real name, but I'm protecting her identity, as you'll find out in a moment why. Lisa was babysitting two kids, and she wanted to go see her boyfriend in the neighboring community about seven miles away. And so she got the brilliant idea, I'm just pack up the kids in the car, and we'll drive over the seven miles so that she can kind of see her boyfriend hang out with him. Problem was, Lisa was only 13 years old. She didn't have a license. And so when she wrecked the car with the kids inside, she got more than just a little slap. Why do we as humans do this? Why do we get so impatient that we do something before we're ready? Can't tell you how many high school students I know who get into a dating relationship and they begin treating it as if it was marriage way before they're ready to exchange vows. I know people who will rush to get the gossip before waiting to go and actually talk to the person themselves directly and get the real story. Or how many people go out and purchase something on credit, knowing the interest rate that they're going to have to pay on this, but they just can't wait. They just can't take the time to save up to make the purchase. We as humans are impatient. We rush. We want it right away. But when we do it too soon, when we jump the gun... We get slapped. This doesn't just happen in relationships or finances or even at the starting line of a track meet. This happens even in the spiritual realm. Some of you are Jesus followers. Some of you, you would take your relationship with Jesus very, very seriously. And as you pray, there have been times where you have a sense from God that he has something for you. It it could be marriage. It could be an advancement in your career. It, It might be ministry. You have this idea, and so you start getting eager for it. You want it. Sometimes in that eagerness, when God doesn't seem to be moving fast enough, when we start thinking maybe he's too concerned with the rest of the world, or maybe he fell asleep. That's really bad theology, by the way. Or or maybe God just isn't paying any attention, or he changed his mind. We will jump the gun and go for it ourselves. But when we do, there's a slap. Today, we're going to jump into Exodus, and we're going to meet Moses, and we're going to see him do this very thing. He's going to jump the gun. God has prepared him for a big task, but he's going to try and do it too soon in the wrong way, and it's going to be a slap, a big slap. We're going to see him lose everything. But what we're going to discover is that God often works in the slap itself. That Sometimes he will discipline us for our good, to do a deep work in us, to prepare us for the great work that he wants to do through us. And that's what I hope you'll get today as we walk away from Moses' story. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're about to jump into the scriptures, and you have written these words far before any of us even breathed our first breath, and these words will be here long after we have breathed our last. And so I pray, Father, that today we would come not wanting to filter this through our filter, but to filter it through yours, that we would filter it through the gospel. We would see what you were trying to teach us and all who followed you. 
Lord, I pray for anyone here today that has been impatient or is currently impatient. I pray that today you would encourage them to wait upon you. I also pray for anyone here who's here today who does not know you. And that today, maybe through this message about patience, they would actually find the gospel. And they would actually find it's you that they have been waiting for their whole life. So I ask that you be our teacher now. In the name of Jesus, amen. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Exodus chapter 2. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, that is perfectly okay with us. Uh, Exodus chapter 2, I've invited my friend Sam to come up and read this for us. So he's going to read verses 1 through 10. Sam, take it away. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at the distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is the one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the women took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. All right. Thank you, Sam. So... What we see, uh, well, I was just actually go back and review a little bit. Last week when uh, my friend Jason here was teaching, he did Genesis 37 through 50. And we learned through Joseph's story how the Israelites, the Hebrews, ended up in Egypt. Uh, a great famine hit the land, and God had got Joseph in place to be able to then welcome the family, bring them back. They were shepherds. The Egyptians hated shepherds. And so they actually sent them to this really fertile area to raise all these sheep and cattle. And they took care of that. Well, what was happening was the, the people, the descendants of Jacob, were multiplying. They, they were really growing as a population, almost becoming like a nation within the nation of Egypt. Well, later, a different pharaoh ends up in power, and he doesn't quite remember Joseph and the whole story. And so he sees this nation out there in this fertile ground, and he starts getting concerned. And so he decides, we've got to control them. We are the mighty power of our day and age. So we can't let these people usurp us. We've got to control them. So the first thing they do is they throw them into slavery. Well, that doesn't work because the people just continue to grow in population. So then he declares, he tells the Egyptian midwives, hey, if a Hebrew woman gives birth to a baby boy, I want you to kill it. We've got to slow down their population growth. Well, the Egyptian women, the scriptures say that they feared God. I think also just as women, they liked babies. And the idea of knifing a little baby boy just horrified them. So they didn't do it. So the Pharaoh comes to them and says, you're, you're not doing what I said. And they lie. They say, well, the, the Hebrew women, like, when they give birth, like, they're really strong. They, they give birth way too fast. We just can't get there in time. And so he declares that if anyone finds a male Hebrew boy to throw it into the Nile River, 
and let it drown. That's why what Sam just read starts off with this idea that Moses is born and his mom hides him for three months. She has a baby. The idea of throwing it in the Nile, killing it, just, it terrifies her. She sees, and, and if you go into the book of Hebrews, it talks a little bit about the story. And it says that they saw that the child was beautiful, that he was fine. Like there was something about him. So she can't do it. So she tries hiding him for three months. But do you know how hard it is to hide a baby? I mean, all their cries and everything else. And so finally the day comes, she realizes, if we get caught, not only does he die, but all of us die. And so she actually ends up obeying the Pharaoh. She throws him into the Nile. She just conveniently put him in a basket that she water sealed and then trusts him to the Lord. Now, maybe she knew that the Pharaoh's daughter came to a certain area. Maybe she planned this out, or maybe this is just God's hand guiding the basket. But somehow, Pharaoh's daughter finds the basket, sees it, and as a woman, she's just, oh, a baby. And she pulls it out. She knows immediately it's a Hebrew baby. She doesn't care. I want it. It's mine. I'm the Pharaoh's daughter. I can have whatever I want. Well, Miriam, Moses' sister, is kind of hiding out, and she pops out and says, hey, do you want me to go find a, a Hebrew woman to, you know, feed the baby and change its diaper, do all the yucky stuff for you? The Pharaoh's daughter was like, oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. Yeah, like, after he's potty trained, I'll just jump right to the terrible twos. You know, I'll skip all that other stuff. Yeah, bring him back when he's grown up. So what this means is that Moses grew up knowing his mom, his dad, his sister Miriam, his brother Aaron, he knew that he was a Hebrew. He would have learned his religion. And yet, at a young age, he would have been then given over to the Pharaoh's daughter as a mom. And now he would begin an Egyptian education. And so he got a little bit of both worlds. He grew up knowing his family, his background, his religion, as he also learned the Egyptian background. So you couldn't blame Moses If somehow in his head he began thinking that there was like a special call on his life. That maybe his parents kind of input it in his head as he was little. Because, hey, he didn't drown in the Nile like the other baby boys. He lived. And God drew him out of the water. I mean, his name, Moses, was a constant reminder of his story. There was something special about him. Why did he get to know his family and yet also get this grade-A Egyptian education? Why did he get all this? Why does he know his background and yet also get the palace? Maybe God has something special for him. I can't prove this, but I think maybe his parents began to input these ideas into his head that he was supposed to be the deliverer to bring the, Egypt, I mean, to bring the Israelites out of slavery. Maybe he got that idea on his own. Maybe he didn't know, but I suspect that he thought, I'm supposed to do something for my people because of what we see next. Look at verse 11 with me there in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2 verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. If there were thoughts in Moses' head that he was supposed to be the great deliverer, the great emancipator of the Hebrew people, to see an Egyptian beating one of his people would anger him, would incense him, and now's his chance. If he thought that there was this call on his life, maybe he was waiting for God to provide the opportunity and this was it. 
Or, or maybe he just thought God was, you know, a little slow. It was time for him to just act. So he jumps in and he commits murder. Now you see, he hid the body. And if no one finds out, it's okay, right? The ends justify the means. I mean, he just saved a person's life. This is good, right? Well, notice what happens next. Verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. In other words, they were fighting. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses thought if he could just hide his crime, no one would know, everything would be fine. But of course everyone's going to know. He saved a Hebrew's life. (laughs) That guy goes back and tells everyone, hey, the the, uh, Hebrew who's also an Egyptian, you know that Moses guy, like this prince, he saved my life. He killed this Egyptian soldier, buried him, and look, I'm still alive. He saved me. And so word spreads. But when Moses sees these two Hebrews fighting and he tries to stop them, rather than to thank him for saving their brother's life the other day, they stop and they say, so you're going to just kill us too? And that's when he realizes he's found out. If all the Israelites know, it's not going to take time for the Egyptians to know. And then if the Egyptians learn it, it's just a matter of time before it gets up to the Pharaoh. And sure enough, Pharaoh finds out. And puts out a hit on Moses. And Moses has to run. That's the slap. He loses it all. He tried to be the great emancipator before it was time. And he receives a slap. Anytime you try to do something before it's time, there will be consequences. Sometimes we get so impatient, we want it now. But it isn't going to satisfy like we thought it would. There was a marathon runner named Ryan Hall. He was one of the greatest marathon runners America had ever seen. At the age of 24, he set, I shouldn't just say set, he shattered the American record for a debut marathon. You see, most marathoners are in their 30s, sometimes even approaching 40. That's when they really hit their stride. And yet here's this young guy, this kid, running marathons and placing. He's doing amazing. In fact, he ran the Boston Marathon, I think what they say, in 2011, in two hours and four minutes. It was just an incredible amount. He's phenomenal. But it started to concern some people because he was so young. They were concerned that he was going to wear himself out. But he insisted, I've been running hundreds of miles since I was a teen. I am just wired this way. And in a sense, many people started thinking he was just a freak of nature. But as he began to approach his 30s and get into his 30s, his times started to increase. He wasn't placing like he used to. In fact, it got so bad that he couldn't even finish a 30-minute run. Many people believe it is because he didn't start his career on 5Ks and 10Ks, like shorter distances. That he jumped right to the big 26.2 distance, and over time it wore him out. And last year, 2016, Ryan Hall had to retire from professional marathon racing at the age of 33. When you try to do something before it's time, 
there's a consequence. There's a slap. For Ryan, the slap was an early retirement and a loss of everything he knew. He had to totally adjust what his life was about. For Moses, it was also an early retirement. He had to leave Pharaoh's palace and leave his reputation. And he lost everything, his, his family, his, his name, and probably his dream. And we see that he ends up out in Midian. The text finished there with him sitting by a well. What ends up happening is he ends up meeting some family, gets involved with them. They're shepherds, so he starts becoming a shepherd. He goes from the top as an Egyptian to the lowest of lows of careers. And he ends up getting a wife. They have kids, and he probably thinks, that's it. Now, we don't know how old Moses was when he fled. I mistakenly thought that it was when he was 40, when he he left uh, Egypt. But in Acts chapter 7, it says that it's actually when he was approaching age 40 that he returned back to Egypt. So we don't know exactly how old he was. Maybe he was 30. Maybe he was 20. We don't know. So so let's just say, for sake of argument, that he was 25 years old. He was a a young man at the prime of life. That's why he had the strength to just take out this soldier. This is where he's at. And then at 25, he finds himself losing everything. And so for the next 15 years, he is living in a wilderness, caring for sheep. That's 15 years of wondering, was it worth it? 15 years of replaying his crime in his mind. 15 years of wondering how his family was doing. 15 years of wondering, am I even remembered? 15 years of wondering, will I ever amount to anything again? Have you ever been there? Have you ever hit an emotional low that that you almost just feel like you can't even see tomorrow? You can't see forward. You don't know how you're going to make it. If you've ever been there, then you know what Moses is feeling out in that wilderness. He went from the highest to the low, and he lost it all. This was a big slap. And yet, it is in the slap That God was at work. Because you see, Moses was to be the great deliverer. He was to be the emancipator. He was going to bring the Israelites out of slavery. It's just that God needed him to not just know what it was like to live in the aristocracy of Egypt. But to go and know what it's like to live out in the wilderness. Because that is where Moses was going to be leading the people. Moses needed to know what it was like to not just have everyone serve him as a prince of Egypt, but to go and have to serve someone else. Because he was going to have to serve those people. And what better training ground than to go and serve a bunch of stupid, helpless sheep? God was at work in the slap. God was doing a great work in Moses so he could do a great work through him. If you've ever had a moment in your past, as I've been talking, and you're thinking back, yeah, I blew it here. I want you to know that's not the end of your story. The slap that you received does not mean that God is done. Sometimes it's actually a sign that God is doing his greatest work in you because he still has his greatest work to do through you yet to come. And we see this in what happens next. Go to chapter 3, start in verse 1, and we're going to see God call Moses to now be the deliverer. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look. This last week, as I was working and researching, I found a story of a Jewish um, gal. She was a teacher, and she wanted to teach this story to her class. Uh, And so she decided to light a bush on fire at school. And so they went out in the courtyard, and she said, we we got the bush there, and we stuck the flames under. She said it was gone in like 60 seconds. I mean, it was just like instant inferno. And she's like, yeah, we'll never do that again. But it proved the point. Because what takes place now is this entire conversation between Moses and God. This bush is not burning up. And Moses kind of sees it at first, like, whoa, bush is on fire. And then it just keeps burning and keeps burning and keeps burning. And like, what is going on? So, of course, he's curious. He comes over, and then God speaks. But Moses has spent the last 15, 20 years thinking that he's lost it all. And so when God says, I'm going to call you to go back to Egypt, Moses starts saying, I think you've got the wrong guy. I remember the moment when I felt God saying, I want you to leave your church, and I want you to go to a city that I'll show you, and I want you to plant a church. And my response was much like Moses. I think you've got the wrong guy. I I didn't think I was capable. I'd never been a senior pastor before. I didn't think I ever could. And who would want to be part of a church where I'm the lead? I'm just a short little nerdy guy. No, I don't think this will work. God, you've got the wrong man. I mean, I look at all these other church planners and the gifts they have and all that they have to give. And I'm thinking, no, you got this one wrong. I totally understand what Moses is doing here. You start looking for excuses. I tried every excuse I could, and I was failing on every single one. And I remember my last-ditch effort was to tell my wife, hoping and praying that she would say, no way. We are not leaving our church. We're not leaving our city. There's no way we are going to go and start a new church. Forget it. And then I could look at heaven and go, I tried. (laughs) Unfortunately, my wife looks at me and says, all right, let's do it. And I hung my head like, no, darn it. That's what happens with Moses. Moses tries so hard to find an excuse, find a way out. How can I escape this call? I don't want to do it. I don't think I can. Now, if you're doing the Bible reading plan along with most of us, you probably have already read a lot of the excuses that he came up with and how God counters each and every one. But today, for our purposes, we're going to just look at one of his excuses. And it starts there in verse 13. So look at chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, this is a pretty lame attempt on Moses' part. I mean, God's already identified himself. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. All right, so he knows who he's talking to. And he could walk back to Egypt, walk into the Hebrew camp and say, hey, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent me to you. And they would all go, Whoa, for you to know that, you must really be coming on his behalf. 
But he's, he's searching. Because you see, the Egyptians have tons of gods. And all of those gods have names. And so Moses thinks, well, if I show up, they may say, well, which God sent you? Because they will want to know that it's the one true God, not all these other gods that the Egyptians follow. And so Moses is kind of reaching and searching. He's like, so, so if they ask me, well, what's his name? What do I tell them? Do you even have a name? And here's how God responds. Verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am. What a name. I am. But, but, but there's a problem with this. Not with the name, but, but with our English translation. Because it's actually one Hebrew word, not two, like we see. And, and we see what looks like a present tense, I am. But actually, when God said this Hebrew word, there was a future tense to it. And it wasn't just like a noun identifying him as this thing, this person. It was a verb. There's an action to it. That's why some translations, they, they put in there, I will be who I will be, trying to capture that future tense to it. And some will translate it, I will cause what I will cause, because there's an action involved to it. In this one word, we get both present and future. We get action in it. You see, most of the Jews would call God Yahweh, or at least that's kind of how we think they pronounced it. And it just meant he is. But the word that God gave was the verb form of that word. Meaning, he is alive, he is moving, he is active. And, and this name is so remarkable that it actually helps you see his omnipresence. That, that he is everywhere at all places because he just is. And not only is he just in every ge ge uh, geographical location, he is in every single place in time. He is there in your present, and he's also there in the future. He is everywhere. It reveals so much about him. This is a powerful name. This is a mighty name. This is a holy name. And this is Jesus' name. If you know where the book of John is, flip there. John chapter 8. Head for John 8. What's going on in John 8 is Jesus was teaching and some Jewish leaders were listening in. And they start getting really angry and bothered. Because Jesus said things like this. That if you listen to my words, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they're coming back to him going, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean we're going to be free? We're the sons of Abraham. We have not been enslaved to anyone, which they weren't thinking at the point because the Jewish people had been enslaved in Egypt and in Babylon and in other places. But in their thinking for the moment, they're like, wait a second, we're the sons of Abraham. We're not enslaved to anyone. And so Jesus thinks, all right, you went there. You're going to talk about Abraham. I can talk about Abraham. And he starts talking about Abraham in such a way as if he knows Abraham and as if Abraham has actually seen him. And they're looking at him going, you've got to be kidding me. Their response to him is, you're not even 50 years old. And you claim to have seen Abraham? And you know what's going on in their head. They're thinking, you're just a 30-something-year-old brat. How can you say these ridiculous things? And Jesus replies with chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice, he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He is claiming to be God. 
Which means that Jesus is here now and in your future nows. It means he is omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he is everything. He is God. And just in case you're sitting there going, I, I don't think Jesus really was claiming divinity. Just look at the next verse. You see in verse 59, the Jewish leaders picked up stones to hurl at him, to try and kill him. Why? Because they knew what he just claimed. He just claimed to be God. Because he is. Jesus is I am. Which means that he's with you in your present now, and he's already in your future nows. He knows the mistakes you've made. He knows the mistakes you will still make. And he will still be there with you. He knows all about you because he just is. And yet he loves you and he's working in you because he's I am. Which means you can be patient. You don't have to jump the gun. You don't have to rush into a marriage. You don't have to start that ministry before it's time. You don't have to manipulate at work to try and get the advancement in your career. You can rest. You can wait. Because God is often doing a deep work in you to prepare you for the work he has ahead of you. So you can be patient. But some of you are thinking through your life right now. And you can think back to the times when you weren't patient where you did jump the gun, where you did sin, you did certain things, and you feel like you're in a spiritual wilderness like Moses. And I want you to hear loud and clear that because Jesus is the I am, it also means you don't, even, you don't have to just be patient. It means you can also forgive. You need to forgive yourself. Yes, there was a slap. Yes, it hurt. You still feel the sting of it to this day. And yet, Jesus loves you, and he's working He has not abandoned you. It's not the end of the story. God has great things still planned for you. No, it's not to go and be the great deliverer. We already have that in Jesus. There might be something else. There might be some ministry. Might be something in your job. There might be something in a relationship. Your best days could still be ahead of you. If you will just be willing to wait, to trust So for some of you, that means you have to forgive. You've got to forgive yourself. Yeah, you went for the kiss too soon. You got slapped. It's not the end of the story. We heard this so powerfully last week in the story of Joseph. Joseph was an arrogant 17-year-old kid. And we see through enslavement and through prison, he comes out this mature, wise, humbled leader so that when his brothers actually appear before him, He doesn't lord it over them. Instead, he actually loves them. We saw it even in the life of Judah. I was so proud of Jason for going there last week. If I had taught last week, probably would have skipped right over Judah's story. Because in chapter 38 in Genesis, Judah does some rather unrighteous things. It's kind of like, that's in the Bible? And then we see it's Judah who actually is the one who says, let's sell off Joseph to slavery. Judah's the one who led that. And yet, When Joseph, testing his brother's hearts, wants Benjamin, the youngest brother, to have to stay, it's Judah who steps up and says, no, take me instead. I will give my life for him. 
Just when you thought Joseph, an arrogant 17-year-old, was done, God wasn't done. Just when you thought Judah, through his sin, possibly couldn't be used by God, you see him go and do something remarkable to give his life for another. And we see it again with Moses. Moses commits one of the worst crimes in our minds, murder. And yet God uses him, a murderer, to go and lead millions of people to freedom. And God can use you. But it means you've got to see Jesus as the I am. It means you've got to trust him. You've got to realize he's with you now and he's already in your future. And you trust that future to him. And it also means that if you have some things in your past that you are still struggling with, you have to forgive yourself because Jesus has forgiven you through the cross. So Father, I just pray right now that you would help all of us in this room to understand you as the I am. To realize that you just are, that you're here now, you're already in our afternoon, you're in tomorrow, you're in next week, you're in next year. You see all of our days in their entirety. You have seen our sin, and yet you have forgiven us. Just Jesus, just as you are in every moment, the cross says that we can be forgiven for every moment. And so I just pray for anyone right now that is struggling, that, that they're thinking through their sin, sin of their childhood or their teen years, if it was a sin they committed last week or even just yesterday. And they're thinking that that sin means that they can't be used by you. I pray, Father, that you'd help them just be surrounded by your presence and your peace that this message would be like a burning bush. You'd be speaking through it, and you would say, I love you, I know you, and I call you. God, I also just pray for patience. Help us to be patient people. Help us to be the kind of people who will wait upon the Lord, to wait for you to do that deep work in us so that you can then do the great work through us. So Father, I pray you'd help us to forgive ourselves for the time we jumped the gun that you'd also prepare us for what is ahead so that when the moment is right, we go forward and there's no slap, there's only joy. And that joy is found in Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone who is here today that does not know you, that today they have the sense that you know them, you love them. And even though we haven't talked about the cross itself, they would realize that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of their sins and they can be freed pray that they would confess their sin to you. And today they'd begin to follow you. And Lord, for those that know you, that are, are struggling with their past sin, today's a day of freedom. It's a day of rest. And I pray for those who are anxious about the future, that today is a day of patience and of peace. So Father, as we go to communion, I pray that you would be in the midst of these elements, that you would draw our hearts to you, we would worship you fully and wholly because you are I am and may that truth just help carry us through our day, through our moments realizing you're with us in our present now and every single future now and that means we can trust it's in Jesus name the I am we pray